it's a long time coming, but it, it, it is coming. It's, it's, a, it's a tide that's going to be a big, it is a big deal already. It's going to be a huge deal in 10 years. And, you know, if you're, if you're going fighting against that tide, you're probably going to regret it 10 years from now. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with a mission to propel this great industry forward. My guests today are Nolan Brown and Diana Fischler. Noel is an innovative expert, entrepreneurial, executive, investor, fundraiser, and board member specializing in the commercialization of emerging technologies in a host of different areas. And Dr. Diana Fischler has served the building materials industry in a variety of roles over the years, most recently as building science and innovation leader at John Mainsville. Welcome to the show to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks. We're, we're glad to be here. Excited for it. Well, I like to start by how you you got into the industry to begin with. Um, so um, many years ago, I spent far too many years in school um, and ended up accidentally with with a PhD. And I, um, I a friend of a friend said uh, that Johns Manville was looking for a glass chemist. They're a fiberglass insulation company, and I thought that might be interesting and fun. And then before I knew it, I was um, in the construction industry. And I spent a number of years in research and development, exploring various aspects of that um, building materials company. So it was a series of accidental decisions that led me to um, having a passion for innovation and construction materials. That's awesome. Uh, I love it. I'm uh, a happy accident into construction as well too. So it's, it's a good way to get into the industry. <laughs> um, I, I I guess in contrast, I, I was very decidedly uh, engaged in this particular industry. I don't come from the industry. I came from, I, I, after graduate school, I was a solar person. So I helped build solar factories. Uh -huh. And um, what I recognized uh, over the years, first from the solar industry, and then by kind of looking at the market data, was that a lot of what is going to happen most likely in construction has happened in these in these these past industries, and we can really the mission of this uh, the mission my mission always has been energy efficiency, uh, clean energy development and innovation, and buildings construction is the biggest opportunity in the world to have an impact on that. So that's kind of how I why I targeted into here, mm -hmm. and why I've teamed up with the Diana who actually has been doing this for a long time, so she can bring you know. She can go fly. I only wish I had been that deliberate. No, that, that's a beautiful <laughs> story. <laughs> I was lucky rather than smart. Hey, it takes both. You, you got to have the smarts and the, <laughs> the luck. <laughs> Timing's everything. Uh, that's really interesting. Noel, coming into the industry with that vantage point, what, what's something from those other industries that, that you think construction can learn like if they could pull out one thing from those industry and implement today what should they be looking at that's a great question and there's a lot of lot of different things if i if i were to summarize if i could pull out one thing i mean just a high level attitude is something that is really important to consider right the great industries of yesteryear that we had that have, are no longer they never thought they were going to go away they never changed they got, became complacent and they they either look very different today or they don't exist here in America anymore. So solar industry is one of the ones that pretty much doesn't exist anymore. It just poof, vanished and it moved offshore. Um, and, you know, my family's from Detroit uh, originally. And so there, there's another kind of catastrophic industrial policy mistake where we decided, oh, you know, we're not going to worry about imports. We're not going to do those things. We're not going to, we're not going to introduce new changes to our manufacturing lines. It's not, not, not what we're going to do. Mm. And poof, you know, the international markets had a really uh, brutal way of whacking up upside the head. And a lot of people are still paying for that mistake to this day. And then if you look at companies like, you know, um, I mean, there's all the, the, the history is littered with these co companies like Kodak, right. Who, invented the digital camera, the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the most innovative companies in the world, spun out of MIT back in the, I think, 20s and 30s. And they went bankrupt in 2012 after they were on top of the world and had to, were the hottest place to work for 50 years. 
Mm. So I spend a lot of time thinking about you know, in the construction industry, you know, we have become complacent, right? We've done things the same way for a very long time. And there's reasons. Complacency isn't just about, you know, making a mistake. It also is like about regulation. It's about lawsuits. It's about you kind of start doing things a certain way because the industry becomes change resistant by the, by the way it's engineered to some degree. They're encouraged to be. Right. Uh, right. Actually, it's smart. Actually, it's smart business to be right, because they get better and better at the way things are. Right. Exactly. And so w within it, within that incremental innovation and incremental improvement that they're doing there to optimize what they're doing right now. You start to kind of lose a lot of the the big kind of discontinuous wins that could could actually open up like 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 the like digital uh, photography was right for mm -hmm. the industry and so that's what we start seeing today uh if you look if you look across the ocean and i spend mo a lot of my time thinking about off-site construction right uh off-site construction changes the paradigm of of, of of the concept of construction because up until today or up until recently we always thought about a building site as being you know people and materials on a on a, a piece of dirt, and you build a, a structure on it, and that's just not how it works anymore with offsite construction. And that trend that you see coming with offsite, it's kind of like the trend that, that that Kodak probably saw when they started in, inventing the digital camera and started seeing people were starting to pick it up slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. It's a long time coming, but it, it it is coming. It's it's a it's a tide. It's a big going to be a big. It is a big deal already. It's going to be a huge deal in ten years. And you know, if you're if you're going fighting against that tide, you're probably going to regret it ten years from now. Yeah. So if the industry is uh, kind of encouraged not to change based on kind of the, the structures and the systems that are in place, how do you encourage that change and to really change a mindset and philosophy and structure? Because you don't want you're trying to avoid that the Kodak problem. The Kodak moment, yes. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah. So how how do you encourage change to happen? And uh, it is. A, a, I've worked on the boards of, of, of several companies before, and at, at the board level, you're always stuck with this conundrum of, hey, we have a great operation going. Hey, we have to make our numbers this quarter, right? And there are these new obvious opportunities, right? And the mm -hmm. people very often who see those obvious opportunities. Are the very same people, right? Who will get cannibalized by them? They're because they're they're on the on the leading edge of a lot of this stuff. So I guess the 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 the, the watchword here is when you see an obvious when when you see an opportunity like something that you think is going to be a big deal, you want to basically start really putting resources into it to to see how you could develop that a little bit more. Because in my opinion, innovation is all about doing solving old problems in new, more efficient, more effective ways. If you do that, you're innovating, right? Yeah. And um, we should always be, you know, doing our mainline business because that's how, that's what brings in, does the day, the day to day, but we can't stop evolving. And uh, that's that's what innovation brings to a company. It keeps you healthy by evolving. And it's, it's it, it is, it costs money to do that, right? But it, it costs a lot more money in the long run not to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Diana, from your vantage point and the research that you've done, what is the, the state of the construction market? And then what's kind of the, the role that you see industrialized construction playing in that here at the, the start of 2022? Yeah, so I mean, everybody kind of knows that that industrialized construction is still a very small fraction of the U.S. market. And what I've been kind of fascinated by though is, you know, Noel was saying like, poof, the industry changes, but that's only true in retrospect, right? Mm -hmm. When you're in the middle of the poof, you, it doesn't look like a poof. It looks like a series of, of pressures coming. And so that's what I'm seeing with industrialized construction. There's a lot of things that are coming together. There's this workforce crunch that is huge. Everybody you talk to in the construction industry is like, I can't find work. I can't find skilled trades. Um, people are delaying projects because of lack of available workforce, right? 
We've got increased pressure on the supply chain um, because of various factors, including pandemics and weather events. And all of those things I think is are leading us to sort of a, a poof moment that, that the Noel was saying, but it's really hard to see when you're in the middle of it. So I think, I think that's where we're at. I think we're at this nexus where we're gonna see increased adoption of industrialized construction. And I wanna kind of make a point here, which is when people think of industrialized construction or modular, they tend to think of volumes, blocks, you know, boxes being put together, but there's actually a lot of, of incremental steps on the way to that. You know, there are like um, combined trades and, and closets and panels and, you know, steps on the way to industrialized construction where we start to do things more like manufacturer, manufacturers and less like artisans. And that's what I think we're seeing. We're seeing it in, in manufacturing, we're seeing it in software, we're seeing it in project management, and we're seeing it in business models. Create a common data environment for your team with 360 Sync. 360 Sync automatically transfers, organizes, and archives project files across applications. It is the only way to automatically sync project files between your server, Procore, BIM 360, Bluebeam, or any other platform you use. 360 Sync is the only document management system designed by and for the AEC industry. Users have automatically transferred over 1 million files and over 2 million syncs. Set it and forget it. Create a common data environment for your team today using 360 Sync. Visit asti.com slash 360 Sync for more information. Mm -hmm. So when you're, we're talking about the kind of that poof moment and the, the time of poof. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the time of poof, we should trademark that. Is, is the mix of kind of the, the catalyst of the change, well, what's the mix between being reactive to the pressures right. of the industry and then being proactive of this is where the industry is going and this is where I'm going to steer the, the company and put these things in place to set us right. up for success. I tend to be a very incrementalist. So I'm always a fan of small changes, like putting a little bit of time in innovation and uh -huh. dedicating a little bit of resources. So now I'm gonna hand it over to Noel because he's an advocate for recognizing that more disruptive change is necessary or possible. I think, yeah, my, my perspective on it is that you need to be innovating every day. It's, it's, a, it's small, continuous disruption every single day. And that grows, that becomes a culture. That's what makes a company successful. Um, once you move into a reactive mode, you're already in trouble, right? Because the, 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 those discontinuous moments, it's hard to predict when they're coming and they're countervailing to the end, very often to, to econo uh, the, the cycles, economic cycles. So if you look at, you look at the solar industry in, in the United States, the manufacturing industry, just before it just got, it got wiped out, it was making you know all-time sales highs, and, and you know everybody was minting money, and everybody was sold out for the next three years. And when you, you transfer that model over to where we are right now in construction, looks kind of similar, right? It's like uh, Diana and I just got back from the uh, International Builder Show, and we were meeting with a whole bunch of folks, building products, folks, and developers, and everybody's like, uh, let, "Talk to me, you know, after we're not backlogged for three years, like we're sold out. We don't. Why? Why do we need to innovate?" And I guess my point is, by the time that need to change something is really obvious to everybody, to the point where it's, it's, it's they're they're bleeding, you can't do incremental change anymore. Or incremental change, you can't you can't basically suddenly just turn it on. It's hard to do that. You can't react at all because it's already too late. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, the, the, the the first camera, for example, to stay to stay on the original analogy, the first camera that Kodak produced was, I believe it was 1975, the first digital camera by a, a Kodak engineer. And it was 1991 before they introduced their camera to market, right? And theirs wasn't the first to market. So they, they, they had it, they had it in the shelf for what, 17 years or 16 years. And then they only introduced it because someone else came in. So Kodak wasn't playing to win the game. They weren't playing to change the industry. They weren't, they wanted zero disruption and they just wanted to participate. They didn't want to be left behind. They had the FOMO. 
But the problem was that by the time they really were like, okay, this digital thing's a big deal now, you already had a couple big leaders in there and it really, that were way far ahead. Mm. And so you, you just have to kind of, kind of have to walk down this road where you're always, you're always kind of changing things a little bit all the time. Right. Yeah. You can't play it too safe. There's a great line that I heard a while back that um, I've taken to heart of you have to disrupt yourself before disruption disrupts you and right. take that proactive stance. Disruption is a fact of life. It's going to happen. It's going to be unpredictable, but if you're seeking, how can I find those improvements? Where can I, you know, to those, that incremental change component to it, how can I build that in as a, uh, just part of our DNA of a company? Then right. when the big disruption moment comes, you're able to be agile enough to deal with whatever that unexpected cost is. That's right. right. And it's as much as it is a technology thing, it's also just a human resources thing. It's you're training your team to be able to deal with this type of stuff. And we've, mm-hmm. uh, we've done this successfully with a number of, of, of clients that we've worked with in the past. So, um, you know, uh, one of the first uh, clients I did this with was uh, in, in, in the construction sector. Uh, so the Stoke Corporation, uh, building materials, uh, building products, multi, multinational. Uh, they're headquartered out of Germany. And um, we had an innovation committee. So I was actually a board member and an uh, innovation committee had been set up and I was asked to lead the innovation committee. And over a series of, you know, uh, of a 10 year period when, when, I, when I was doing this with them, you know, I think we were able to evolve the model to real, to figure out how not, to, how to take innovation from being something that we give like quarterly updates about, like the world is changing and shouldn't, you know, isn't that cool? To how do you, how do you kind of infuse, create, create a little team? We, we, had, we had an innovation committee and a team that worked all year round. And we would just kind of meet occasionally to talk about what are the, what are the key things that we should be looking at over the next quarter? And how do you move that, keep moving that ball a little bit forward, a little bit forward. And what starts happening in the organization is that that new information and that those new solutions start inspiring the people who touch your team. Like, so you started seeing, it was the executive folks who were working on, on, the, on the team, but as we started, as some of the work kind of got out more into the, the general population uh, of coworkers, people were excited. So like, hey, this is great. We're doing things in a new way. It also meant that you had leadership interfacing with the with some of the people on the on the on the floor who had these new ideas, and so there was more kind of engagement and communication, and it was a really awesome thing to see. And it, it, it's that type of thing, in my opinion, that not only gets you set up uh, in the on the technology side of the coin, but also you know you, you're cultivating the team that you need to be successful in the future. I just want to give uh, not a contrast to to what Noel said, but a compliment to it. What people sometimes see, though, is that innovative um, efforts get squashed, right? Like you said at the very beginning, in the the daily, um, you know, pursuit of the main business. And so the ideal outcome is that the whole organization begins to become innovative. But one of the things I've been studying is how do you nurture a baby innovation in a big corporate? And, um, you know, I've been looking for examples of when that's been successful and my appetite for it was first wet at, um, at Johns Manville when um, the model was to nurture little baby businesses. And so um, this is sort of another model beyond if you can't quite disseminate innovation throughout your organization, one way you can do it is to dedicate a few resources to it and to protect them fiercely and to, to nurture a new initiative or maybe even sometimes outsource that new initiative when you've identified something really strategic. So I just wanted to share that as sort of an, another way to do it. If you haven't yet reached the critical mass, which you nicely did at your, your previous board role of being able to get everybody kind of to share in the innovative um, approach, another, one thing you can do at the very beginning is, is, is skunk works it right? To nurture something that you know is important. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that's a theme that you got to do uh, actually all, all in both cases, right? Because uh, we actually 
we were actually firewalling off projects as well and making sure that they right. had a team behind them. In fact, right. the, the, the creation of ADL Ventures, uh, the company that we work for, was in part kind of uh, impacted or at least motivated by creating a project team that could work in parallel with the main team in, in, in the company so that there was always somebody pushing the ball ahead. The biggest problem that I've noticed in most companies that try to do the, that understand what they want to do and, and try to innovate is that you want, you, it, it's hard to keep the effort going because it isn't your everyday business. You get fired for not hitting your numbers. You don't get fired for not having an idea most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you get fired for taking risks, but you don't get fired for, you know, doing, doing what was done before very often. And so there are these heavy disincentives, right, to keep that ball rolling after, after your innovation meeting and you have this new strategy and you're really excited, everybody's inspired. And then you kind of go back on Monday morning and it's like, okay, let's do what we always did because that's what we do. And we have to hit our numbers, right? That's the number one priority anyway. So I found that the, the, I guess back to your point of what's the number one thing a company could do to, to be innovative, make it someone's job to be innovative. And if, if, if you don't have a dedicated team that's doing innovative stuff internally, make sure you're working with somebody externally who's going to push that ball ahead for you and interface with your C-level folks. So that'd be kind of the, the low-hanging fruit there, develop kind of a, an innovation incubation team internally. Yeah, yeah. So it really is like having like what we had at Stowe was the innovation committee, and we had like a little team supporting that at ADL. Uh, I've I've seen we worked with folks who basically have that entire team internal, and they want to they they build it up and they they keep it going. Some mm-hmm. some companies are better at doing that than others. Some people some companies have more resources than, than, than others to do that. So, but that's a really important thing to be consistently doing. Um, mm-hmm. because as Kodak demonstrates, right. And then the analogy, it's not enough to actually invent the digital camera. You can invent the digital camera and still lose. Right. It's, it, you're, you're, you have lots of brilliant researchers. You got to take action on it. You can't just have the thought you got to take action. <laughs> exactly. You have to take action. On and, 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 and well, that's true. Everywhere, that's right? true. And, and, and from that, I actually was, I like this story, not just because I'm, I'm, I'm a, a tech geek, but because it's, it's really interesting. The, the other players in like Fujifilm was actually Kodak's um, competitor, uh-huh. big competitor. And Fujifilm started working, started a partnership with Xerox, actually, which I thought was kind of ironic because Xerox was one of the companies also that, you know, Xerox Park kind of fumbled the ball as well, right, on innovation even though they were an innovation unit, right, at, yeah. at a big company, they 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 went out and they invented effectively like the the graphic user interfaces, like they invented invented Windows. They basically a lot of modern computing is predicated on all the stuff that Xerox Park did, and it's it's just amazing that you know you have these companies that did such brilliant work and then going that last mile to implementation and and, and disrupting their own business, it just becomes a really really hard to do. For a lot of people, because it, it, it is it, it's very unintuitive to to do something that, that hurts you in the short term because it's going to give you long term gain. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software with solutions for the modern project. Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, so bringing it back kind of into the construction context, when trying to embrace that made for factory mindset in construction, where do you see most people struggle um so i'm I'm, diane's gonna have some very interesting perspectives on this too the biggest struggle i always see is that people want people think about the process of creating a structure for someone to operate or live in and they think about building a house or building a building 
right? And they think about what they've learned in terms of you go to a job site and then this happens and that happens. There's an order. There's a there's a process that has been finely tuned over the last hundred years of how it gets done. And so stopping that, like saying that, you know, imagine that, you know, you're an alien and you fly to earth and you have the resources we have today and now, but you don't know how to build a house. Your job is to figure out how to build a house. Mm -hmm. You would, you would not build it the way that we normally build it. You'd be, you'd not be constrained by the way we used to do it. You'd basically look, look at everything objectively and say, here's the most efficient way. Here's the fastest way. Right. And those may look very, very different. Like than building does today. Um, and there's going to be obvious commonalities. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about boxes with, with roofs on them, right? But at the end of the day, let's talk, I mean, if you think about building materials, right? On one hand, you know, it's, I think a lot of buildings products, people say, look at me and they'll tell me, no, we're, there's not a whole bunch of new stuff that we need. I mean, it's all going to be the same whether you use it in a factory or not. And that's probably not true. I mean, maybe half of it will be the same. But a factory setting is completely completely different than a, than a field setting. You don't have rain in a factory. You don't have weather in a factory, right? You also don't. You, you it's also a constrained environment where, where you can you can do a lot of techniques and processes that you can't do in a field. You can't do you can't use a UV light in a, in a field to do to cure, you know, polymers, right? But you can do that on a factory floor, yeah. and so. You, 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 if you're on if you're on site and you have people moving pieces of material around, there's a maximum size it can be. It can't be the size of a, a tractor trailer. It has to be like a brick size. A brick is a brick is size of the brick because a person has to pick it up and and, and brick lay it, right? But what if you what if you become unconstrained because you're in a factory setting? What does that mean for sizes and quantities and, and packaging and everything? Your the products and how and how you go about assembling something. So. I think that's really that's really the paradigm that people kind of have to think about is like if we're changing the fun the fundamental process of what we're doing, what does that mean, right? Because I mean I don't have a superhuman like insight as to exactly what the best way to do it is, but there is a better way to do it, and that's where the that's where the innovation comes in. You go out and you change it a little bit and change it a little bit more, and you figure out what works over time. And before you know it, your new thing looks a lot different than your old thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to hit on just a couple of points. I mean, one is totally echo what Noel said about um, many of our procedures and our materials are designed not just around the last hundred years, but around hundreds of years, right? The size of a brick is because craftsmen hundreds of years ago found those convenient to handle. And um, we still, I think, have a very artisanal approach, I think I used that word in the beginning of this podcast, to a building, right? We're crafting a building. And I think that the future is toward manufacturing a building. And that I'd like to see us move that direction. But then on, there's a couple of things that you didn't touch on, Noel. One has to do with the way that the, the systems beyond building materials are now all built to reinforce the way we're currently building things. Um, we've got a lot of efforts around codes and zoning that we're doing um, with some partners in the Department of Energy, looking at the way that those codes do not encourage moving toward a productized or manufacturing type of mindset for the materials and the, the parts of buildings. Um, we still think of it as a process rather than a product. And making that change in mentality is what's going to be necessary, I think, in construction. Because as we've already hammered pretty hard, we think we're in the poof moment of, of the opportunity for disruption in the construction industry. So those are two things I wanted to talk about, um, specifically around this idea that all our systems are now optimized for the way we currently do construction. Codes, the way the supply chain is set up, logistics, delivery, delivery of materials, sizes of materials are all in this minimum, local minimum, like an energy minimum of um, the best way to do things given certain assumptions. But if we change our assumption to a manufacturing and product-based assumption, all of a sudden a lot of things have to change. And you know, we're, we're right there trying to help people to get to the point that we need to be because we don't have enough buildings, we don't have enough housing, we don't have enough labor, it has to change now. So that's why I wanted to touch on. I, 
I was going to say, I think you're you're dead on there, and I think it is changing. I mean, the the poof the poof has begun, right? You started seeing it was back when uh, when uh, Citizen M was building the hotels in um, in Manhattan, right? So all these prefabricated hotels, luxury hotels, modular, were coming on in from uh, Polcom, I believe. Uh, so a Polish manufacturer was doing the, the West East Coast stuff, a lot of stuff on the uh, East Coast in uh, hospitalities. And you started seeing a lot of institutional stuff like dormitories and going up. I think UC Berkeley did something. There's something down in San Diego, I think, as well. And that was a, a Chinese kind of supplier. So you're seeing that, you know, the first, the first inklings of us off, offshoring the industry, right? And that's what, that's what it, it will look like if we don't want to. Uh, I, I, I passionately feel, and it's been something I've been working on for the last five years now, but I, I really want, I'm trying to get the industry to play together nicely, American industry, because we have fallen, we've fallen behind in, in this particular sector. And, you know, developers are going to at some point give up on trying to buy locally and they'll just hire whoever can get it on their doorstep. And if they, if they can have to ship it from China, and if the numbers work, they'll, they're going to do that. And we, we need jobs in America. Like construction is one of the last bastions of, you know, kind of, the backbone of the American economy jobs. And for me, that, that's, a, that's an important thing we need to keep here. Um, so let's not, let's not offshore our, our, our building industry because that could happen. Hey, innovators, is there a way to prepare your company for successful implementation of technological innovation? After over 115 episodes, talking with some of the best minds in the construction industry, the answer is a resounding yes there are building blocks that you can put into place that will form the foundation for your company to successfully implement technology. I have compiled my thoughts from those conversations into a new ebook simply titled Foundational Building Blocks for Successful Tech Adoption. You can download the ebook for free at our website, bridgingthegappod.com. After you have, I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, keep innovating. So if we as an industry kind of could get one ask to change minds, even in the government, what do you think it should be? Back in 2016, 2017, uh, when, the new, when, the, when the previous administration had just gotten elected, I was spending a lot of time in Washington sounding the alarm about offsite construction and the, the loss of American offsite uh. construction. And um, it was a really interesting moment in time because it was probably like the only bipartisan thing that was happening in Washington at the time, right? Both sides said, this is actually not good, right? We, we don't want to lose our, we don't want to lose our manufacturing, the last manufacturing jobs we've got. And, um, and it, the, the more technologically inclined folks were like, hey, this is great because we're going to start bringing high tech into, into, into the construction industry. Uh, so there was a nice, happy, happy, happy medium there. And, and so we, we built up a lot of steam behind this offsite construction coordination. So I guess one of the things that um, I'd been working towards was how do you, how do we speak out together as an industry kind of, and this is part of it is ABC, but part of it's kind of getting the thought leaders together to understand what is the story that we want to tell these Washington DC? Like what, if we had one ask, what would it be? We, we, we should know what that is, right? And uh, in my opinion, we would like, ideally, right, in, in the offsite construction world, we would like to have a situation where the federal government decides that they're going to buy a billion dollars of, of offsite stuff every year, right? Uh, so prefabricated structures that they could use for, you know, for catastrophes, like for, for FEMA, buildings when if, if, uh, if, the, if a hurricane comes through or um, you know if it, 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 after the after they're used for the short-term stuff there you could you could use them for uh, affordable housing units to house uh, homeless people for, for for a period of time and you could I mean you, you could use them as ho hospital rooms right if we have another another uh, Greek letter shows up and everybody's it has to we have, we have to expand hospital capacity. I mean, that's how the Chinese, when they were able to put up, I think the last hospital that went up was in Shanghai in five days. That's how they do it. They have an inventory of all these things ready to rock. 
So if we, if the industry had one ask, what would it be? I would encourage the industry people to get, get together and think about it. And here's one that I think would be a great answer is like, hey, why don't we have a federal program? Why doesn't the federal government consolidate its uh, purchasing to, uh, to get us going in the right direction to, to save or build up this nascent industry, this, this, this infant industry, and turn it into something that will be uh, globally competitive and, and, and serve the United States interests even better? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point and in, in bringing into the conversation with, with codes that you were mentioning, Diana, uh, there's right. some pretty sizable kind of systemic barriers with really creating the, the groundswell of, of this change that is outside of construction. So you have codes and the government regulations of how a building's built. You got all the supply chain issues and craziness that's going on now as well, too. So. Right. What can be done to help kind of push the uh, the need for change out into all those other areas so that it's not just the builders that are, are wanting it, but that they're also able to then influence all these other stakeholders and, and different aspects that are involved in the process. So now I'm going to segue into the ABC Collaborative. Now. I figured you would, yes. Go for it. <laughs> So one of our partnerships is um, under a DOE program with RMI, used to be the Rocky Mountain Institute. And um, Nolan was um, the initiator of this, you know, proposal that we are, we're now actively bringing stakeholders together under this um, program funded by the Department of Energy to talk about this, to say, we've identified these major barriers to innovation in the built environment. And you know, since it is funded by the DOE, it has a strong bent towards energy efficiency. You know, we shouldn't be wasting so much energy in our buildings. But it also has um, relies strongly on a pillar of offsite construction. Industrialized construction is important. So you know, we're we're partnered with them to look at what's the problem. What are the things we really need to attack? Codes and testing is one of them. Workforce availability is another. Um, offsite construction enabling that supply chain is a, is a third. Um, risk and finance products is another thing that needs to be addressed. Not all of them are optimized for a product and industrialized manufacturing approach to the way we um, do construction. So that is one mechanism. It is not the only mechanism for, for addressing these systemic barriers, but it is one. Yeah. I I would add to um, this by saying, when you ask what people should be doing, it really depends what their role is in the in the industry or in, in the sector. So, I mean, if you're a if you're a a, a building a, a building product manufacturer or kind of an industry head in the supply chain, you should be thinking about like showing leadership, right? Uh, you should be thinking about going to where the ball is going to be during the good years, like right now is, is what exactly when you should be making your investments, you're sold out. So you're, these are, these are the fat and happy years. You don't have to stress out. Too much. Right. You don't have to worry about sales. You don't have to worry about marketing. It's all going to take care of itself for the next couple of years. So right now you should be putting a lot of effort now into, okay, let's figure out what the next building materials are, for example. So going, just going back to that one, one example I was talking about, there is going to be like an offsite product portfolio that has that, that is optimized for offsite manufacturing for manufacturing in a factory mm -hmm. that doesn't exist yet and if you go out there and you you, you talk you say who's who's the, who who makes offsite products there are no no distributors who are offsite the offsite distributors there are no manufacturers who are known as the offsite manufacturer there are no pr machine producers either it's, it's it is a completely nascent industry really at this point then so somebody it'd be I, I'm an advocate of like getting people to go and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to be the building product. I'm going to be the distributor that aggregates all of the offsite building products and puts them together. And, and we, we build that brand or, or, you know, the, the building products manufacturer who says I'm that we're going to basically develop a line of products specifically so that we are more competitive in that market. We are, we're solving the problems that, that the factories have as opposed to the on-site workers. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important as an industry player to think about how to invest during the good times. So you're there when, 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 when that 
hoop moment happens. But there's the other. Well, Diana was talking a lot about uh, codes and regulations, and those are really those are really sticky and really important. If you if you can't work that out, it makes things way way more hard. Um, one thing that we can learn is if you're a regulator in the system, let's not try to reinvent the wheel. Let's study what everyone else did. And there, there are a lot of countries who have done this successfully, to be honest. Like the, the, the British actually uh, did this really well. At some point, they decided not that long ago that industrialized construction, that offsite construction was really important for their, for their country. And so since the government basically builds a quarter or a third of the buildings, Right in Britain, they were like, "Well, if you want to ever win a government contract, you better be able to, to, to use BIM and do this and do that." And so they they set the infrastructure for the for for everybody that they they had to follow in order to win government projects. They kind of built it in there so that automatically added it to the system. And using the same type of organizational uh, cohesion, the government can also start looking at the regulatory regimes and say, "You know what." Here are some here are some laws. Or here are some regulations that are really handicapping the industry. So we're just going to strike those down and see what happens. Yeah, or change them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so if, if you could innovate something in the industry, what would you choose to to innovate? Um, I have a lot of ideas. Um, one of more. I, I I won't I won't tell you like that. This is the best idea I've got, but. One of the one of the more interesting things I see is a space in the market for aggregation of offsite projects, right? So, for example, and I've worked with a couple folks, uh, owners, builders who have have said, "Hey, you know, we 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 built like twenty, we built twenty hotels like prefab, and um, honestly, they we don't see it. We don't see this the savings you're talking about, or how it's not going up that much faster." What, tell me why. And you're like, okay, so how many times did you, um, how many times did you build the same hotel? And they'll, they'll look at me like, what, what do you mean? Like same hotel. And I'm like, well, that's the problem, right? Industrial manufacturing is about producing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So you've got to basically treat it as if you're, it's a manufacturing project. And that's why offsite construction will not be the answer for every, all construction ever. That, 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 that no one's ever advocating that that's, that's how true. it should be. There will, there will all, there'll always be some things that should, should be custom buildings, right? But a lot of things don't have to be custom. So like hotels don't have to be custom most of the time, hotel rooms specifically. Um, you know, uh, developments, uh, tr tr tracked home developments don't have, in fact, they're not generally, uh, they're all, 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 all that unique, even when they're built on site. Uh, uh, so there are areas where quality and, and, and luxury uh, will trump out like the need for people to be have a different a little uh, things different from their neighbor right if you have a nice place rather than a less nice place that's unique so i think that, that that's so i'm sorry i'm way off track but the the big the big idea here is what is the what is the invention that you need so that you can interface with the owner right with with, with these people who they want they want to build you know, 400 hotels, and they they know they want to do it offsite. And there's a there's a world of software out there. That's not really the problem. It's not that there's software. It's 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 how do you basically build something on the front end that enforces that process of you know figuring out how to um, how to modularize something in a disciplined way, figuring out what that means in terms of its component parts, you know, for, and go from BIM to bomb. So be able to cost out, like, if I change this, what, what is this change in terms of price and time? And I think that's something, that's something that isn't invented yet. And it's not a straight up software app that plugs into, into an ecosystem. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of software and hardware. Mm -hmm. but that's, I, I think if we, if we could build that, that would, that would change the industry. Nice. Dana, how about you? Well, so... <laughs> Noel definitely talked about demand aggregation and you know standardization, which I think is really important. But I actually want to go even wackier and talk about what, what I want to see change is the philosophy around the way we do things is the way we have to do things. And the question that I always try to ask is, what does my customer actually want? 
So like somebody who commissions a building, somebody who wants a home, what do they actually want? Because what they want is not all the things that you've developed to deliver them that solution. What they want is a home, right? They want a place to be, they want a comfortable place, they want a place to do their business. And when you start to break it down to what they actually want, you realize that many of the ways you've developed to deliver what they want are not really value add. And so stripping it down that way, I think gives opportunities for innovation. I know that's really abstract, but I think every time you break down your business and the customer that you serve to asking what they actually want rather than what you want to sell them, I think there's opportunities to innovate. And I know that's not as concrete as what Nolan said about demand aggregation and standardizing hotels, but that's where I think um, a lot of innovation can be uncovered. Yeah, I, I more than agree. I, I think you need, you need both. I think you have to innovate in your mindset first before you can really innovate practically and with, you know, bring it into the, the real world. You got to change that mindset first. I mean, spot That's on. Right. Um, well, how do people find out more information of what you guys got going on at ADL and, and connect with you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Noel. Yeah, so um, so we have a website. It's uh, adlventures.com. Um, you can always contact me or Diana. Um, and we're, we're happy to, always happy to chat. Uh, I'm NOL at adlventures.com. Diana is Diana at. Um, I, I'm literally up for a conversation about any technology in, in any clean tech. So, yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, when it comes to a, a, ADL Ventures is, is about helping companies build new ventures through this innovative structure that we've set up. So um, if you, you think about, um, if you think about the, so at a high level, ADL Ventures is a mission-driven for-profit company that helps uh, corporates build new ventures. And we focus in the clean tech space. And more specifically, we focus on smart cities, right? The, 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 the intersection of construction, utilities, and transportation. That's, that's our, our, our wheelhouse. And uh, in the, those areas, uh, those, those, those industries account for 90% of CO2 emissions in the world. So that's those are the areas you got to address. These are also the three heavily regulated industries that are very change resistant, and there there hasn't been much that much innovation in these industries compared to others because you know they're they're change resistant by design. They're they're, they're supposed to be not just rapidly changing everything, uh, and because uh, there, there's safety issues, there's codes and all that stuff. There's there are important reasons why you can't do that. So we focus on looking at companies in those industries who want to launch new innovative products, or we work with folks who have figured things out. They, maybe they've created a whole bunch of IP, like, like the Kodak, like the, the, the Kodak folks, right? They, they've got the digital camera, but they don't know what to do with it. It's stuck. So we'll, we'll help them launch that. We'll, we'll, we'll build into a new company for them. So we, we do two kinds of things. We, we'll, 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 we'll take a piece of a great idea that one of our partners has or one of our corporates has, and we'll, we'll, we'll turn it into a company and we'll spin it out. Or we will go and we will um, understand a need, a real problem they're trying to solve. And we'll find a, we'll build a company for them, either, either to supply them or to, or to, or for them to, to, to buy as a business unit. Mm, nice. Well, I got one last question for both of you. Uh, what does innovation mean to you? I'll go first. Um, I'm just going to repeat what I said a minute ago. It's um, understanding the true need of a customer and then figuring out what, in what ways that need can be satisfied. And it may not be the way you're currently satisfying it. No? Nope. I would say that innovation is solving old problems. And they tend to be older problems. They can be new ones, but it's you're solving old problems a new way, a new it's more a more efficient way, a more innovative way. And when Diana talks about like knowing the customer, that's a precursor to right innovation. You cannot innovate unless you know what you're trying to achieve. What what, what is the what what is it, what problem you're trying to solve? Right. So the, the, those become critically intertwined things. But let me 
let me point out what innovation, in my opinion, is not, because I think a lot of people make this mistake, right? Innovation is not marketing, right? It's not, innovation is not, is not customer service. That's, those, those are vital to, be, to having a successful business. You got to do them well. But those are not, that isn't the innovation part. That's the precursor for de defining what the problem is so you can go out and solve it. Mm -hmm. and, it and it's these, the solving the problem, a new, a new and innovative way, more efficient, more, more cost-effective, more faster or whatever. That's the innovation. Those, those are the bolts of lightning when somebody is looking at a process and saying, hey, if I did it this other way, it would, it would be better. Well, let's, let's, let's see what happens. That's, that's the innovative spark. Mm. Both great answers. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. I got so many more questions that we could dive into, but this was, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on and, and unpacking innovation and industrialized construction. Thank you, Todd. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having us on. Take care. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, create a culture of continual improvement and innovation. When you give people not only the space but the permission to explore and test ideas, you will be amazed at the creativity and the initiatives that will come back. I was recently at the AECI Summit presented by the Construction Progress Coalition, where teams were essentially tasked with this mission. It was so inspiring to see people throughout the industry come together to innovatively address and seek to solve systemic problems in workflows. It is possible. Second take. Avoid the Kodak moment in construction. As we discussed at length in this conversation, Kodak made the mistake of playing it too safe instead of playing to win. Instead, you should seek for daily small improvements that add up. I get it. Changing a mindset and process is really hard and uncomfortable. However, it does pay dividends in the end and in the long run against your competition. Final take. It may seem like looking back, change happens with a poof. But as Diana said, when you are in the middle of the poof, it feels like a series of pressures instead. I love that line because it's so true. We are in the middle of the construction poof. There are so many internal and external pressures being placed on the industry to change. It's going to be exciting to look back and know that we thrived in and after the poof of change. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software, at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.